Our scripture lesson today comes from Luke, uh, the good news, chapter 15. This is known as the gospel within the gospel. Um, it is uh, perhaps uh, the most succinct uh, view of our God's heart uh, in all of the Bible. Let's share in God's good word together. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We conclude our sermon series uh, called One, uh, with one is greater than 99. Will you say that with me? One is greater than 99. What does Jesus mean by that when he says that? Uh, I invite you to take your sermon notes. We're going to take a look uh, at this story a little closer. And if you've been in church a long time, uh, I want to suggest to you that perhaps this story doesn't think what you think it means. Maybe we can hear it anew. And if you're here for the first time, uh, we hope that you'll hear it for the first time. To to set the stage or the context, uh, first of all, we have to sort of look at what Jesus is doing. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of Luke, what happens is Jesus speaks or he gathers around with people uh, of questionable reputation. People like tax collectors who are in cahoots uh, with Rome. A tax collector was a really smart business person uh, with lots uh, of, of business awareness and money. And so if if you could contract with Rome, all you had to do as a chief tax collector was bid on a region. And then Rome would say, I need X number of dollars from that county. And whatever you get over and above, you get to keep. But we have to exact from the people this amount of money from that county. And the tax collector, all they had to do was pay their money to Rome, get the contract, and then they could charge people whatever they could get out of them. And, And they would give Rome what Rome demanded, and then they would keep the difference. That's how they made their living. So you can imagine uh, that their neighbors and friends around them hated them. They were despised because they were wealthier than everybody else, and they knew that they got their wealth from them. They took it from them. So to be a a tax collector was one of the worst things that could happen. So Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, and other people that, that the Pharisees said, you just can't do that. Now, you might say, well, what's a Pharisee? We kind of throw that word around. Uh, A Pharisee is a sect within ancient Judaism. And the main distinguishing characteristic was a belief in an oral law that God gave to Moses at Sinai along with the Torah. Uh, And around here we talk about the Torah like this. If you know them, say them with me. They are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jewish folks would know these five cold. These were written down and everybody knew them. But the Pharisees said, no, 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 it's not just the written law, sort of like our U.S. Constitution, in a sense, that set down a series of laws that were open to interpretation. These Pharisees also believed that God gave Moses the knowledge of what these laws meant and how they should be applied. And the Pharisees were the only ones who knew it. Imagine the kind of power you could have if you were the only one that could interpret the Constitution. And whatever you said goes, however you see it. You see, the Pharisees maintained that there was an afterlife... And that 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 afterlife looked like this, that God punished the wicked and rewarded the righteous. That's who the Pharisees were. And they were always in conflict with Jesus. And so in in your context, the Pharisees would look forward not to the saving, but the destruction of the sinner. 
That's how William Barclay, the great theologian, describes it. Not, not the saving, but the destruction of the sinner. And Jesus came to turn that on its head. Jesus is responding to the grumbling and the accusations of these religious leaders, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So in Luke 15, 1 to 3 is the setup. Now, I mean, this is a setup before Jesus tells the story. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They weren't happy. And they said, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this story to set them straight. So Jesus looks back at the Pharisees. This isn't sort of a, a teaching to all people at all times. He's looking back at the people who are dogging him in the conversation. He says this, which one of you? Right? He calls them out. He's pointing at them. Which one of you, you hard-hearted so-and-sos, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? He says, even you people know how to do this. Right? Which one of you, he says. And you're going to go after that because that's just what you do. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. This is what life looks like. You're not worried about the 99 in the pen. When one is lost, you go and you search it out. And this was mind-blowing to people if they thought that God they would actually go out and search for those children who were lost. This was a new concept of God and one, quite frankly, that they weren't all that open to. You see, Jesus not only corrects them, but he's also embarrassing them by calling out their hypocritical character. Which one of you, he says. Now, the problem with this is that so often when I was little growing up, I would hear uh, the great uh, master uh, preachers say something like this. Well, you know, there are different kinds of sinners. There are sheep sinners, for example. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it all focuses on the sinner and it, it all focuses on, on the son and, and his repentant heart. And, and everybody kind of kind of focuses in there and we see, well, you know, what sort of things does God forgive and what are the sorts of things that God doesn't forgive? I think God forgave this person because of their heart. I think God doesn't forgive this sort of thing. And that's where the conversation often goes. But I want to submit to you that the problem is that sheep cannot repent. Sheep don't have a moral compass. They're sheep. So we're not talking about the character of the sheep. We're just not. And so, friends, the, the parable is not calling sinners to repentance. And that's how I've often heard this preached, that we just need to be more like the younger son. And we'll get to that story in a minute. But that's not what this parable is about, because there are three parables back-to-back -back that Jesus is talking about. And the first is about sheep, and sheep can't repent. And the second is going to be about a lost coin that we're going to get to in just a second. And coins don't repent. You see, the parable is calling the righteous to join the celebration, to, to join the searching to join the finding, to join the party that God, and we know this through scriptures, through 2 Peter 3, 9, is it is God's will that all the world should be saved, that not one should be lost, none should perish, but all should come to repentance. You see, the, the problem in the world is that people want mercy. I mean, we might even say this for ourselves, that really what we want mercy for ourselves, have you ever gone to the principal's office or maybe you've been in trouble with your boss and what you really are hoping for is mercy? But that person that's crossed you, you really want justice for them. We want mercy for ourselves, but justice for others. And friends, that just doesn't work. It divides the world and hurts the world and ultimately causes wars, this unforgiveness, this lack of mercy. And so Jesus answered to the hard-hearted Pharisees. Remember that he's talking back to these people who are grumbling about his wide compassion. And he says this, there will be more joy in heaven 
Not just joy in heaven, but here he says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over how many? 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, now you have to start to wonder, well, what does this mean for a local church? Where's Jesus' heart? Now, there's nothing wrong with the 99, right? But, but what Jesus is saying is there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99. One is greater than 99 in this story. Those who find God's mercy offensive cannot celebrate with the angels when a sinner repents. Thus, they exclude themselves from God's grace. So says Alan Culpepper. Now, now this is really tricky, friends, because not only is uh, the story telling us that those who we used to think were out were in, if we're not careful, those who we thought were in, if we close our hearts to the others, are actually out. You see, we can actually exclude ourselves from God's grace when we don't include our hearts with what God's heart is about. When our hearts don't break for the things that break God's heart, we're no longer a part of what God is doing. And so Jesus shares these stories of God's heart, the lost sheep, and then he tells the story of the lost coin. So, so whenever Jesus does things three in a row, lost sheep, lost coin, lost boys, pay attention. We're supposed to pay attention. So in this story, he says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying what? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, repentance, of course, is not just a thought. It's to turn your life towards God. It's an action step, right? If you're going one way, to repent means that you actually turn and go the other direction, that we're turning our lives towards God. It's not simply mental ascent. It's a life path. It's what we're doing. It's where we're going. It's what we're thinking about, talking about, living out. Jesus shares these stories about God's heart. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boys. And so Jesus' last story ends with an open question or a warning. But make no mistake about this, friends. It is a story of two lost sons. See, Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. It's misnamed to say the prodigal son. It's not about the prodigal son. Uh, And it's also, you could name it the, the story of a father's loving heart. That's closer Uh, But if you read it in its fullness, it's really about two lost sons, isn't it? You see, they're both lost. The younger lost son is found in verses 12 to 24. And this is the part that we really enjoy because this is the easy part for many church-going folk. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. In other words, you're as good as dead to me. So he divided his property between them, which is shocking. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. He went to Vegas, and, right? Got nothing, he's on the street. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. In, in need so bad that he was hungry, and he knew that even his father's hired hands were treated better than what he was going through. So when he came to himself, and sometimes you have to get to bottom, and he does. How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off, and he goes to his father. But while he was still far off. Now, for me personally, I think that might be uh, the most beautiful line in all the Bible. Because it shows God's heart. 
The father represents God in this story, of course. While he was still far off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. And he ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And he kissed him. This fall, I came across this sculpture by Charlie McKessie. And it's really powerful to me. I, I think it captures this moment at this point in the story. The son hasn't been able to explain anything yet. He hasn't laid out his Eddie Haskell-esque, oh, hey, this is why it's okay that I'm back. It's none of that. In the father's eyes, the boy was dead. And he found him alive. And as I look at this sculpture, I, I think, is, is that boy alive? He's so limp and, and scooped up in the father's arms. And the father is, you know, smelling him and holding him and he finally has a part of himself back. But, but notice, this is before any sort of commentary. This is the heart of God for you. This is the heart of God for every person on the planet. This is what God's heart looks like, scooping us up wherever we've been. And it doesn't matter the story. The story comes later. This is about the Father and about how he loves us, about how he loves you and how he loves me. This is what Jesus is teaching us about this younger lost son. So as the, as the boy is able to steady himself and, and the father sees that he's got all his fingers and his toes and he's actually alive, barely malnourished and starving, but alive. And the son hops in to the only things he could think to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, not to the boy, he looks out to his friends and the slaves says, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to do what, friends? Celebrate. Celebrate because that which was lost has been found. That which was thought to be dead and gone is now alive and in relationship with the father. That's a party. You don't want to miss that party. And all the slaves are like, sweet, we're going to eat good tonight. We're getting steak tonight, friends. This is great. We've missed him. We love him. He's home. That's the story we like. The second lost son is actually harder for most of us. You see, the older lost son, also lost, not near the father's heart, is found in the next verses, 25 to 32. It goes like this. Now his elder son was in the field. Any, any oldest children here? Some of you know where we're headed. These young ones, they get by with everything, don't they? They get to stay out later than we stayed out at the same age. Oh, they, oh, cute and creative and sweet. Lazy, ne'er-do-wells. I'm the youngest, so I can say that about myself, Right? <laughs> So the eldest son's in the field, and he comes, and he approaches the house, and he hears music and dancing. Now, the reader would go, whoopee, music and dancing. Not, no, 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 not this guy. Like, what is that? Why is there dancing in my house? Because you see, the older son owns it all now. It's his. It's all going to the older son. It's all his. And he wants to know what's going on in his domain, in his kingdom. He hears this dancing and, and music, and he calls one of the slaves, and he asks him, hey, what's going on? And he replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And the older brother becomes angry. 
not rejoice. And he refuses to go in. His father comes out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen. You see the disrespect in that. You hear that. Listen, old man. I told you this would happen. His heart is no closer to the father's heart than the son was when he was in Vegas. Equally lost. Not in a salvation relationship with the father at this point. Heart looks nothing like the father. He answers his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. Is that true? No, that's not true. He's not a slave. He's the owner. Hyperbole. I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. You're going to put money on that one. Not once, not, not even once. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. This is the kid that owns it all, by the way. His little brother has nothing at this point. And there's nothing in the story that says otherwise. But when this son of yours came back, oh, it's not his brother any longer, is it? No, no, no. This son of yours comes back who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, this is remarkable to me, son, son. He's still, the heart of the father, still begging to be in relationship, in right relationship with his oldest boy who was completely off page. And he says, son, you are always with me. And here's the truth. All that is mine is yours. All of it. Don't forget that. I gave it all to you. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this, what? Say it with me. Brother of yours, the father says, was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Son of yours. No, 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 no. This brother of yours, son, lost and has been found. Lost and been found. And you see, this, this is where it gets tricky for us, friends, that the story ends. And Jesus leaves the story open. With this question, does the older brother go to the party or not? Does he join the celebration or not? That's our question. When other people around receive mercy and compassion, are you happy about that? Are you, in, are you celebrating with that? Trevor Hudson uh, puts it this way, and I think he's exactly right. Repentance is not something we do once. Rather, it is a pathway away from ego rule and toward life in the kingdom of heaven. You, you can tweak that out. It's, it, it's right under the characters. Right? Repentance is not something we do once. It's not a sinner prayer where we just say it one time and then the life tracks exactly like we think it will. No, no, no. Our, repentance is about turning our life towards the Father's heart daily, hourly, moment by moment. So it's no longer our way. That's the problem of the older son, isn't it? Now, what are you doing, Father? This isn't right. I'm in charge now. You gave it to me. This is my house, my rules, my dance, my party. Turn that music off. We're not doing this for him. You see the hard-heartedness of that. And it is not like the father's heart at all. The older son is just as lost, if not more, than the younger. And by the end of the story, they've actually flipped, hasn't it? In the beginning of the story, the younger boy is lost and is found. And you would think at the beginning of the story, the older boy was found, and then he actually loses the relationship with the father. At least that's how the story ends. It's not yet reconnected. 
We have to give away ego rule and towards the life of the kingdom of heaven. We have to say with the younger brother, I may not be worthy to be called your son, but I'm here to work for you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to be in relationship with you. You call the shots. I'll obey. Now, Jesus does something really interesting, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, but, but throughout the Gospels. And that is that Jesus tells a story, and then he lives it out. You see, Jesus' words and deeds matched up like no one else who's ever lived on this planet. What Jesus said, he did. And when John the Baptist asked about whether he was the Messiah, this is what he said. He said, you go tell John's followers, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. What do you think? You see, Jesus lived out exactly what he talked about. So if you go down in the Bible just a few chapters later, in chapter 19, we come across a man by the name of Zacchaeus. It's a beautiful story of show and tell. And, and it's exactly what was going on in those stories. And the Pharisees haven't changed much in four chapters, by the way. Jesus enters Jericho as he's passing through it. And a man there was named, what? Zacchaeus. I'm told he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And he was what? A chief tax collector. The very people everybody hated. He was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus does. He hurries down and he is happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to what? Celebrate. For what was lost had been found. No. Grumble. And they said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. And so Zacchaeus stood there and he said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, which he had, everybody knew it, I will pack four times as much. I'll give them back. This is good news. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because Zacchaeus' heart had turned to Jesus' heart. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the what? Lost. The lost. You see, Jesus actually steps into the very stories that he's telling, and he does exactly what is described as the Father's heart. So now we get to kind of, you know, where the rubber hits the road. Your action steps, friends, for this week. Write down three groups of people you don't like and are out. Imagine the person that under no circumstances do you want sitting next to you in the pew next Sunday. That person. And if you're on the end row, you've got to make something up. But, you know, I'm saying. Think about it. You have those? Think about them. There, there are people in everybody's life where you're like, oh, yeah, I, do, I really don't want them to come to church with me. I, no. I, I deal with them all week long. The last thing I want for them to be is in church with me. Oh, no, Lord, please no. Let them go to Life Church down the street somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. Anywhere else. But what if the Lord is calling you to have his heart for that which is lost? I think that's more than possible, friends. What are the three groups that, that you don't like? Those people that are out. Now, secondly then, then think about this. What are the characteristics of those groups? What are those people like that you don't like? Is there any pattern there? Is there any consistency in the characteristics of the people you just don't want to be around? Those people who squander their money in dissolute living and somehow live to tell about it. 
What are those people? Now, and here's, here's the insight, friends. Because thirdly, uh, which of those characteristics do you de- detect in your own life? My experience is that more often than not, now there's a peace in them that is not yet redeemed in you. That the people that drive us crazy are the ones that have the same character flaws that we have. And if they can't get it right, how are we ever supposed to get it right? And we can't train them how to get it right because we haven't gotten it right yet. And I just don't want to be around those people because they're a constant reminder of my failure. And my need of a savior. Oh, snap, there it is. That I need a savior. In the same way that they need a savior. And more often than not about the very same things I need a savior about. You see, it's never been about merit anyway. It's about mercy. It's about God's mercy. So which of those characteristics do you detect in your own life? Because, friends, as long as we're in the legalistic business about who's in and who's out, what's merit, what's not, who's saved, who's not saved, we're in trouble. And God has a grander vision to where we leave the judgment to God alone, the only one who has the right character and loving heart of the Father. And some beautiful things happen when we get out of the way and we see the Father's heart. In the story of finding Dory, the parents didn't just say, well, I hope she figures it out. No, in in that parable, they spend their days laying out trails for their daughter to find her way home. They too, like the father, standing at the edge of the fence line, straining and looking out, is that our son? Is that our daughter? Are they coming home? How can we run to them? How can we help them come home? And with all that I am, friends, I think that's the point that Jesus is making, that it is our job as a local church not to simply stay here and see if if those sinners might figure out a way in here, but for us to go out into the world That all the world would be transformed by the love of Christ as we lay out pathways and trails and ways to connect in in highways and under bridges and in homes and in neighborhoods and in our work and in our schools. That we are going out and we are saying welcome and we are looking and we are inviting people home into the love of God. And Jesus leaves us with the question, will you join the celebration? Will you? It takes our best effort. Amen?